no matter what, as the quarterback at a high-profile school, you're always going to get way too much credit and way too much blame. The only thing that's different about Stetson Bennett is he actually never gets the credit. Hello, welcome to Always College Football. We made it, folks. It's August 1st. We have college football games this month. Time to get excited. The Hall of Fame game for the NFL, if you're into that sort of thing. It's coming up just a couple days from now. So, hey, we're almost there. We made it. It's time to start diving into fall camp. Dive into some of these rosters, and we're glad that you're here to do it with us here on Always College Football. Please like, rate, and subscribe. Really helps the show out. Really helps us out. Hit us up in the comments. Tell us where we can improve because we're trying to tailor the show to what it is that you guys are looking for. I'm Greg McElroy. Along with me, as always, is Mark Kubiak. We have a great game plan in store for you today as we're going to play a little game called Low Hanging Fruit. You're going to like it, I promise. We're also going to dive into a couple of teams that are expected to be on the rise. I picked out three major questions for each of the three teams that we're going to address. So hang in there, volunteer fans. Hang in there, fans of the Cornhuskers. We will get to you. I think you guys all have a chance to be better this year, but there are three big questions that are standing in the way. So without much further ado, let's talk about it. All right, let's talk about it. Three teams that we've picked out, and there are many more. So if your team's not listed amongst these three, we'll get to you, I promise. We still have several weeks before the first game's get underway. So don't worry, we're going to hit everybody. We do not overlook anybody here on Always College Football. But there's three teams that we wanted to highlight today that I think are marked for significant improvement here in 2022. We're going to start with the Tennessee Volunteers. That's right. Three big question marks, though, for the Tennessee Volunteers. And there are a few others. There's a few more question marks than that. But for each of these three teams, it's like the law of three today. Each of these three teams that we're going to hit, there are three legitimate question marks. The first question for Tennessee is, can you get off the field on third down? That's right. Second worst third down defense in the SEC in 2021. They allowed over 42% conversion rate. That, in case you're wondering outside the SEC, that's good for 101st out of 130. That's, that's not what you want. But on a little bit of a deeper dive, as you, as you dive just a little bit deeper, not only do those third down conversions naturally hurt their defense, but... Among the 61 scoring drives in which Tennessee gave up last year, 37 of the 61 were actually the result of a drive being kept alive because of a third down conversion, including more than half were touchdown drives. So you have to be able to get off the field on third down. I think you can do that with addressing two different position groups. Question number two. Can you solidify the middle of the defense and the secondary? One of the biggest concerns that I have about this defense this year is actually the fact that Matthew Butler was maybe their best defensive player. He's no longer there. Other two defensive players that I think are significant losses, you obviously lose Alante Taylor and you lose Theo Jackson. Alante Taylor played starting corner. He was your number one. He was your alpha. He was also great against the run. Love Alante Taylor, by the way. And Theo Jackson was probably one of the biggest surprises in the SEC last year. Those two guys being gone in the addition to Matthew Butler is something that might be significant. 
Now, Rodney Garner, the defensive line coach, probably one of the best in the country. Nobody does a better job than him. Well, there might be a few, but he's among the best in the country. He is going to have to develop some young pieces and develop them really quickly. You also lose Caleb Tremblay. You also lose Jaquain Blakely. It's not like you bring back everybody with the exception of Matthew Butler. You don't. There are going to have to be some pieces that step up. And right now, with what Tim Banks does defensively, most of their presence, at least in affecting the opposing quarterback, is going to come off the edge. Please let someone emerge in the middle. It might be Latrell Bumpus. We'll see. I think some people have felt like he's the most likely candidate to step up in Butler's absence, but it might take more than just him to replicate the productivity that you got from Matthew Butler. So I know I've said Matthew Butler a hundred times. I just thought he was that important. I really thought he was maybe the best defensive player and probably one of the unsung heroes on last year's surprising effort from Tennessee. The back end is also something that I'm very concerned about. We're talking about third downs, rushing the passer, and being able to create cover matchup problems for the opposing offenses is something that Tennessee is going to have to address. And right now, without Alante Taylor, we only have a one-game sample size of him not being out there. That was the bowl game against Purdue in the Music City Bowl, and it was not good. As of right now, I think they'll be fine as far as number two corners are concerned. I think their depth is okay, but you need to have an alpha. And I also think trying to find out who's going to play that nickelback spot is going to be very important. We'll see who it is. I'm not sure how it's all going to shake itself out in this defensive system, but the back end has to be addressed. That group really underachieved last year and gave up a ton of yards. 122nd, to be exact, in college football last year against the pass. So you couple that with the fact that they're replacing their two best players off of the group that gave up more yards than just about anybody in the SEC and more yards than just about anybody in the country. Not ideal. So find pieces to replace Alante Taylor and Theo Jackson. That's going to be a difficult thing for Tennessee to overcome. And then finally, here's the third thing that Tennessee absolutely has to do when trying to make a surge in the SEC East you got to be able to run the football when everybody knows you're going to run it. More specifically, in obvious rundown situations, third and short, along the goal line, you got to be able to run the football. Couple that with the fact that they were a great run team last year. It's almost mind-blowing how much they struggled when it came to short yardage of goal line. Of course, we all remember what happened at the end of the game, the final play of the season. But in 26 rushing attempts, on third and short or fourth and short in the final four games of the season, the Vols failed to gain a first down on 10 of those 26 rushing attempts. That is unbelievable, especially knowing the fact that your quarterback in Hendon Hooker is a very capable runner and you lose what might be your best offensive lineman, probably your most versatile offensive lineman in Cade Mays at right tackle. Now, I know everybody else is back, but you got to be able to run the football when the tough yards are there to be had. They got to find who that running back is going to be. Because last year, as soon as uh, you know you you lose a piece in, in Tyon Evans, next thing you know, the running game kind of disappears, especially when it comes to that short yardage and goal line situation. So got to improve that. It will also help you in putting the game on ice in four-minute situations. So I think Tennessee, run the ball when everyone knows you're going to run it. That's the third question for them. So those are the three. Let's revisit Tennessee. Can you get off the field on third down? That's number one. Number two, can you solidify the defensive line in the middle of the defense and the secondary 
And number three, can you run the ball in obvious rundown situations? Those are the three big questions that keep Tennessee from potentially getting to some people think could be a 10-win season. Wouldn't surprise me at all if they can especially improve in the three aforementioned areas. I got I got a bonus question for you. Okay. If he's ruled eligible, what impact will Brew McCoy have on Tennessee in the passing game? See, that that's like the least of my concerns with Tennessee. Now, Brew McCoy, of course, being everyone's All-American, right? I think he's bigger in name than he is in productivity so far. doesn't mean he won't get there, but everyone knows him because he was at Texas and he was at SC and it's like transferred all over the place, right? So, And he was a five-star, you know, all-world type of player. But when you look at what they have at wide receiver, the last thing I'm concerned about is what they have at that position because that group is stout. We all know exactly what the pecking order is likely to be, too. We know that Tennessee is going to go out there and Tillman's going to be the first option, going to push the ball down the field. Obviously, he had an insanely good year last year, went up for over 1,000, had 12 touchdowns. He's back. Uh, so I think that if Brew McCoy can come back, he's going to be fighting for looks because Jalen Hyatt's in the mix. I mean, Warren's in the mix. You obviously want to run the football. I mean, but Hendon Hooker, I mean, that's a very talented cast that he has to rely on. And if Brew McCoy is out there, it's only going to become even more talented and more deep with what he could potentially provide. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. All right, on to team number two that I think could really surge this year, and it's the Louisville Cardinals. I think there's a few things that are standing in the way between what they did last year and what they could potentially do this year. It centers around their quarterback, new offensive coordinator. There's a lot of things right now I think to like, especially with how they've recruited. Goodness gracious. Have you seen how Louisville's recruited? It's unbelievable. I mean, they have like one of the top classes in the country for 2023. So it feels like there's some momentum around the program, which is surprising because it really hasn't been all that positive the last several months and even the last couple of years. But there's three things that I think Louisville can do to immediately surge here this upcoming season. The first one, can you please learn how to finish? <laughs> there were so many games last year where Louisville had the ball on their racket but faltered in a crucial moment. It might be failing an opportunity against Wake Forest. Uh, the, the, the collapse against Virginia would like keep me up at night. Okay, uh, The goal line stand uh, against Clemson and the inability to stay competitive in the fourth quarter of the game against NC State. I mean, those were four games that were very, very winnable. Just for whatever reason, they could not get it done. If you learn how to finish. Now, the one thing I'll say about this staff, and I think Scott Satterfield does a fantastic job in, in being 
being willing to look within, being able to kind of strategize, all right, how can we make sure that the same thing doesn't get us this year that got us last year? Well, the staff has made everything, everything this year about finishing in the fourth quarter. They've emphasized the way they finish practice, and that's a heightened level of intensity. They've now implemented a, you know, a new training aspect in regards to their mentals, making sure the guys are, are focused and know how to compartmentalize the pressure there at the end of the game. They did the same thing, by the way, in 2020. Uh, and well, in 2021, for the 2020 season, 2020, all they did was turn the football over. So what they do? They made all about turnovers, turnover gauntlet, all this other stuff they did in practice in order to make sure that turnovers weren't an issue in 2021. It was met with tremendous results. So hopefully the self-scouting that the staff did will be beneficial for Louisville when it comes to finishing games here in 2022. That's number one. Number, number two, we know... At least I know. I think Malik Cunningham's one of the most underappreciated quarterbacks in college football. I think he is so underrated. He's got unbelievable God-given gifts, is occasionally the tiniest bit erratic, does occasionally miss open wide receivers. Okay, we know he's great. I know the talent at running back is deep. They have really, really solid pieces there. But I'll tell you what I don't know is the pecking order at wide receiver. But what's that going to be? Look, we know that there have been turnover at that position for the second year in a row. It's not ideal. Jordan Watkins is gone. Tyler Harrell's gone. Justin Marshall. All those guys, three of the top four wideouts from last year based on yardage receiving are in the transfer portal and all found new homes. What we do know is that Amari Huggins-Bruce is a pretty dang solid piece. Now he's the top returner and could be in line for a massive breakout year. He only had 29 catches last year, had about 450 yards or so, four touchdowns, what have you. He might now be forced to step up as the number one guy. A couple other pieces that maybe you're not so sure about. Braden Smith, another guy whose name I've been hearing some pretty good things about. He's in line to be a key piece, but got banged up early in the year and wasn't necessarily available. And then you also look at what they've done on the portal. Talked about how they're recruiting high school kids. Well, they also did a pretty good job in the portal this past offseason. They go out and they get Tyler Hudson who by according to everybody is a is a star in the making. He's from FCS Central Arkansas. So when we're talking small school, this guy's supposed to be the real deal. I don't I don't know. <laughs> I'm be honest with you, I don't know. But based on the people that do, they say he can really do some things. And then the other name that you need to remember is D. Wiggins. He's from Miami and he was in line to start uh, you know, after a few years there. So he's in a good spot too. So the receiver core might actually be pretty good, but they need to, I think, get a little bit better and being well-rounded in that regard before I can expect Louisville to really take the next step. So who are going to be the reliable pieces at wide receiver? And then finally, for Louisville, you have the quarterback in Malik Cunningham. I think there's two positions you absolutely have to have if you want to be a contender in college football. You have to have the quarterback, and you better have a good defensive line. And right now, when you look at Louisville, over the last few years, they are probably one of the most underwhelming groups that the Louisville roster has had. They've had good talent. They've recruited pretty well. They've had some nice pieces. And you think about great Louisville defenses in the past, man. They had guys that could get after you at quarterback. So at least there's one bright spot for optimism. I already referenced the transfers that they have at wide receiver. But the biggest transfer that they brought in, I think, is the nose tackle. They bonafide. He might be an NFL guy. I think he is, is a real 
difference maker there in the middle of the defense, Jermaine Lole. He's from Arizona State, and now he transfers over. He should secure the middle of that defense and be able to provide a little bit of a boost to that spot because it's been a little bit underwhelming there the last couple of years. So his immediate impact will certainly be felt. Uh, you also can look at the true freshman, Ashton Jalot. He was rock solid last year. Eight tackles for loss, four sacks. He also missed some time. As a true freshman, that's a pretty dang good place to start. Then Yaya Diaby, not the greatest year in regards to statistical production, but he had plenty of opportunities. I mean, he was a fixture in the opponent's backfield. He just couldn't close. I finished with three tackles for loss, just a sack and a half, but he had seven quarterback hurries. So if you look at what he could have done statistically last year, if he could finish when he got to the queue, he might have had a big season. Those three names, in addition to, I think, what should be a little bit improved depth, could help Louisville take the next step along the defensive line. So the three questions for Louisville, we'll revisit them. One, can you learn how to finish? Too many games last year got away. Too many games were close calls. You have to be able to win the close ones if you want to get over the hump. Two, what's the pecking order at wide receiver? Who's going to step up? Who's going to be your one? Who's going to be your two? Who's going to be your three? And can Malik Cunningham develop the chemistry with those guys as they head throughout fall camp? And three, how do you get more out of the defensive line. Lole is a great addition. Hopefully, he's going to be a guy that helps elevate that whole group because I believe a rising tide lifts all ships. But if he's not as expected, will there be other pieces to help mix in that group? They can be good. They can be rock solid. But I want to see better production. And if they're going to contend, that's a spot that definitely needs to step up. All right, bonus question with Louisville. Is Malik Cunningham a Heisman sleeper, especially with his last three games of the year being Clemson, NC State, and Kentucky? Why not? Uh, this guy has so much ability. It's uh, When you watch him, he's so fun to watch. The problem is I'm watching him. I remember a game pretty specifically. I want to say it was against Duke. I think it was a Thursday night. It might have even been a Friday. I can't recall. But I remember him watching. There, there were probably two or three overthrows that if he makes the connection, and I know P Tennessee fans might be watching still, they know this feeling. <laughs> like If you could just hit a couple of downfield throws like Tennessee was unable to do early in the season, then it can make a world of difference. Louisville has some of that too, where they have guys wide open. They have guys that have gotten open. They have quality plays off play action because you know they're going to be able to run the football. I mean, every secondary in America is going to sit there and say, well, we don't know anything about the wide receivers, so let's take away the run and see if they can throw it over our head. That's probably going to be the approach. And honestly, Malik Cunningham, I think, needs to do a little bit better job of letting those guys run free and letting those guys run under some throws and not allowing it to be an overthrow. There's a few too many of those, but I think Malik Cunningham's rock solid. So if he can connect on some of those big plays, if he can put up some of the stats that a lot of us anticipate coming from him, he's not played a lot of football, and he has a pretty good supporting cast. So granted, obviously, when it comes to the Heisman, you got to be in the national championship picture. I have a difficult time thinking Louisville's there just yet. But if he can show drastic improvement, then why not? He certainly has the skill set and certainly has the ability to be able to get that done. All right, now on to our third and final team. A lot of people seem to think that this is maybe a bit of a reach for me, but I like them this year. Maybe I'm crazy and I will certainly eat crow if they don't take the next step. That's for sure. I can promise you. But I want to talk about the Nebraska Cornhuskers. 
I think this team's poised after what they did last year to make a significant step forward. I know that look three and nine is three and nine and you are what your record says you are, but this team felt better than three and nine last year. And Vegas already has their win total at seven and a half. So what does that tell you? It tells you that Vegas clearly thinks they're going to be pretty, pretty good, at least quite a bit better. So I am bullish on Nebraska. There are three major question marks that I have right now. One, how does the new offensive staff come together? Look, it's been documented. Mark Whipple, the new offensive coordinator, he comes over from Pitt. Pat Narduzzi just a couple weeks ago said he didn't want to run the football. We want to run the football. We want to be balanced offensively. Well, Mark Whipple now found out that, hey, I want to go to a different spot, get a fresh start. And I think this is actually probably a pretty good move. Part of the reason why, if you look at the Big Ten numbers against the run, it's very, very difficult to run the ball in the Big Ten across the board. You can look at whether it's Wisconsin or, or I mean, Ohio State had their fair share of challenges. Michigan was, of course, great against the run. There have been several teams in the Big Ten that have prided themselves forever. Iowa, another good example, have prided themselves forever in being able to stop the run. Well, it's hard to run the ball in the Big Ten. So what do you do? Go hire a coordinator that's pretty dang good and finding completions and finding yards through the air. That's what Mark Whipple is. So I think it's going to be pretty good. But how does he bl- how does he blend with Brian Applewhite, the running backs coach, the wide receivers coach, and passing game coordinator Mickey Joseph, and then of course the offensive line coach. More on them in a minute. Donovan Rayola. They were all brought in. The offense really wasn't that bad. I mean, they scored almost twenty eight points per game last year, but it just wasn't good enough to be able to get them over the hump on so many different occasions. So I think their offense will be better. I think their offense will score points. I think this offensive staff is the right move for Scott Frost in a critical year to be able to take advantage of a Big Ten, and more specifically, a Big Ten West that is slightly more more vulnerable against the pass than they are against the run. That's question number one. Question number two. Is this offensive line going to be able to protect anybody? We'll talk about the quarterback in a second, okay? But this offensive line last year, I don't want to say they were atrocious or horrible or any of those other things. No, I'm not going to say all that. But they didn't give Adrian Martinez much help. And if you look at just how often they got beat, it was really, really jaw-dropping. Probably among the worst in not just the Big Ten, but arguably in all of college football. Like I don't do like pass blocking grades and stuff like that. I'm a quarterback. Like I don't do that stuff. But I know when I watched the tape and when I watched Nebraska, there were a lot of guys that were screaming, screaming in their pass rush against Adrian Martinez. And there was a lot way too many occasions where he was actually running for his life. So will the offensive line be able to step up in a new pass-happy scheme? Look, that, to me, is a huge question mark. Because if you struggled in pass blocking last year with a major dual-threat quarterback, what are you going to do when you have a slightly more prototypical drop-back quarterback and an offense that's going to throw the ball a little bit more often? That, I think, is something that's going to be figured out. Couple that with the fact that you also lose probably your best three offensive linemen from a year ago, two to the NFL draft, and one who's suspended for the entirety of the entire season. So I I think you lose those interior three, and you got real issues. So can Nebraska figure things out with new offensive line coach John Variola? I think they'll be okay. I think they'll be better. And I also think Mark Whipple won't put them in difficult situations. He'll get the ball out of Casey Thompson's hands fast. He'll do some misdirection. He'll take some of the pressure off up front. I think he has to because this group might take a little while to gel. Question number three. 
All right. We know about the new staff offensively. We know about the offensive line struggles. But do we know this for sure? Is Casey Thompson an obvious upgrade over Adrian Martinez? Is it, does it go without saying? Are, are we positive? I don't know. I don't know for sure. I, I know statistically speaking, I can look at it and say, well, Adrian Martinez, you know, 10 picks, 14 touchdowns. You know, I look at Casey Thompson at 24 picks, led the Big 12, all this other stuff. But, but I don't know for sure right now that Casey Thompson's way better than Adrian Martinez. I think Adrian Martinez got a little bit of a bad rap. And don't get me wrong, there were a lot of things that bothered me about Adrian Martinez the last few years, whether it be the, the I mean, constant struggles, up and down play, uh, turnovers, especially late in games. I mean, there are things that I can understand why Nebraska fans would get a little sour. I get that. But right now, Casey Thompson, it's not like he just led the Texas Longhorns to you know a Sugar Bowl berth. Now, there were still some things that he did and could probably improve on as well. So I think while Nebraska fans are excited, hey, Hope Springs Eternal, we got a new guy coming in. He's going to fit this offense nicely. The guy that they just had does have pretty impressive skill set. It just never came to the forefront. It's a good marriage for both. I think Adrian Martinez is going to do great at Kansas State. And I actually think Casey Thompson is going to do really well at Nebraska. But I also think what... Martinez had to play behind from an offensive line standpoint. Um, some of the challenges that that they had in just trying to pass protect. I don't think we ever got a fair, I guess, fair evaluation of what Adrian Martinez could have been. Look, I think that Thompson's solid. I think he's rock solid. I think this offense will suit him nicely. But I cannot tell you without a shadow of a doubt, slam dunk, that he's way better than Adrian Martinez to the point where Adrian Martinez, a three and nine quarterback. Casey Thompson's a 10-2 and two quarterback. I don't know if I can go that far just yet. He is a little bit of a question mark for me, but knowing how much is going to be put on his shoulders, he, I think, has to be the third question when evaluating what Nebraska might be. So we got three major question marks for Nebraska. In order for them to take the next step, I got to know whether or not the offensive staff will gel and will come together. Number two, will the offensive line in a new pass-happy scheme be able to keep their quarterback's jersey clean? And three, is their quarterback this year, Casey Thompson, going to be that much better than the quarterback that they had and struggled with because they lived in mediocrity the last few years? Is Casey Thompson that much better than Adrian Martinez? I guess we're going to find out. Bonus question on Nebraska. Will the pressure that Scott Frost is under just ultimately be too much for him and in, in the team this year, even if they are improved? Well, so, see, but like, I think some people always want to, you know, characterize these guys as like dead man walking. You know, like I, I, I don't go that far. Like I think, I think Scott Frost, he, he didn't take dumb pills when he got to Nebraska. Like he didn't forget how to coach. Like it just, it's a little bit of a trial and error. Nebraska's been in a little bit of a different spot. Um, but I still think that yes, while the pressure, and they probably feel even more pressure because it's your alma mater. I would love for people to go back now. You know, hindsight being twenty twenty, tell me what Jim Harbaugh looked like at Media Days last year. And knowing the situation that he was in where they, hey, we just can give you a pay cut. You're basically on a one-year prove-it deal, all this other stuff. Did, I mean, reading between the tea leaves, did, did, did he look good? Did he look good last year? And ultimately, did it affect how Nebraska or Michigan played last year? No, I think Michigan was pretty dang good. He got to the playoff, won the Big Ten. But if we're going to like hyper overanalyze what these guys look like at media days, then we're probably going to be... <laughs> We're probably going to spend a lot of time reading way too much into the tea leaves. Let's just see what happens. Um, a lot of people don't like media days anyways. I'm sure being a coach that's squarely on the hot seat, 
it's probably not a very fun place for Scott Frost to be, but there's reason for optimism around his team. And there's reason to feel like they could take a pretty significant step forward. Some people even think they could contend in the Big Ten West. I think that might be the tiniest bit far-fetched, but I'd be highly surprised if this team isn't back in the postseason. And I'd be highly surprised if they don't get to at least six or seven wins. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, now it's time to turn our attention to a new segment, one that we'll use many, many times here in the days, weeks, months, years to come. It's low-hanging fruit, so we'll kick it off with our dear friend and co-host, Mark Kubiak. Uh, that's right, Greg. Low-hanging fruit. Great segment here. Low-hanging fruit. If Georgia loses a regular season game, the fans will blame Stetson Bennett. Well, in order to completely declare whether or not this is low-hanging fruit or truth, we must at least know what the loss looks like. <laughs> like. But based on history, everyone wanted to blame Stetson Bennett for their loss in the SEC championship game last year when Alabama scored 42 points. So unless Stetson Bennett was also playing corner covering Jamison Williams, I don't know how you could blame him for that performance. Now, he didn't play well. He forced a couple picks, like didn't, didn't play great. One pick wasn't his fault, but either way, no matter what, as the quarterback at a high-profile school, you're always going to get way too much credit and way too much blame. The only thing that's different about Stetson Bennett is he actually never gets the credit. So I don't really understand how to, how to deal with it. I don't think it's fair. I think he is extremely underrated. And if you look at what he did in the fourth quarter of the national championship game, he should be forever endeared, forever beloved, by Bulldog Nation. And not, I called the spring game. Second Carson Beck threw a touchdown pass. I saw people lighting up my Twitter feed saying, there's my quarterback, Stetson Bennett's no longer. I want Carson Beck. Y'all, it's a spring game. He's going against the twos. What are we doing? So <laughs> I think Stetson Bennett is going to unfairly get criticized regardless of what he does or how he performs. So I'm going to say that is not low-hanging fruit, but that is, in fact, true. Next one, if it's not Clemson, the ACC will not have a team in the college football playoff. Now, this one is low-hanging fruit because a lot of people have said, well, you know, Clemson, you know, they're, they're the ones that they always get the benefit and, they, you know, they have the talent and, you know, Florida State before them when they were dominating the ACC. I mean, they got in in 2014 and all this other stuff. Fine. That's all good. I'm, I'm, I'm good with all that. But ultimately, we've seen teams a la – North Carolina in 2015 that was an onside kick away from beating Clemson and punching their ticket to the college football playoff. A couple of years back when Miami was making a run, I think it was 2017, whatever year it was, they were sitting there at number two in the country, played poorly last few games of the year, end up tumbling out of the college football playoff conversation. So no, I'm not one that says, well, they, you know, the college football playoff rewards brands and all stuff. No, like I think they reward the four best teams. And regardless of, what those four best teams' history is, they will get in. Uh, for instance, if Wake Forest last year is undefeated and doesn't get beat badly by Clemson, are they in the mix? If Pitt, if they don't play poorly at times at the beginning of the season, 
are they in the mix? I mean, sure. Is, is NC State, who a lot of people think is a dark horse this year, could they make a run? Without question. Absolutely, all those teams can make the cultural playoff. The problem is we've seen way too many occasions in which those teams stub their toe. And I think in the ACC, it's a little bit more difficult to generate the goodwill because people perceive the league as not being quite as strong or as deep as the Big Ten or as the SEC. Fair or unfair, it's played itself out over the course of time. Now, I think there's plenty of teams that play really high-quality football. I love NC State. I love Pitt this year. I think Florida State will bounce back, even though I think playoffs is a little bit of a reach. And I think Clemson's actually going to be excellent. So I think the ACC will have a playoff team this year. My money's on Clemson, but I wouldn't wouldn't at all be surprised if it were Pitt or NC State or, heck, even North Carolina. People think they're going to be dangerous this year as well. Okay, we have a quote the next one from George Klyavkov at Pac-12 Media Days. He said, with respect to the Big 12 being open for business, I appreciate that. We haven't decided if we are going to shop there or not yet. Harsh words from commissioner to commissioner. Low-hanging fruit or not, the war of words between the two conferences, Big 12 and Pac-12, is becoming petty. <laughs> no. I I think that uh, that petty is... Probably not the right word to describe it. Uh, I think there's real vitriol right now between Brett Yormark, the commissioner of the Big 12, and Jor Klyovkov, the commissioner of the Pac-12. Why would there not be? It's been documented that the Big 12 has gauged the interest of multiple Pac-12 teams, and the Pac-12 is in the midst of a media negotiation. So <laughs> obviously, there's no love lost between the two teams. And I think in an effort to take advantage of this newfound vitriol, we should have a kickoff tournament between the Big 12 and the Pac-12 every single year. Hey, your number one team plays our number one team. Your number two team plays our number two team, and vice and so on and so forth. And take 12 versus 12. Do it. Why not? It'd be fun. So I think it'd be... Uh, I don't blame the commissioners at all. And I thought George Klyovkov, frankly, him coming out swinging left a good impression with me for the future of the big, of the Pac-12. Not that they're going to, you know, rise like a phoenix from the ashes. I don't know if they're going to carry the same weight that they once did just like the Big 12 where they've added really really quality pieces in BYU, Cincinnati, UCF, uh, and Houston. Those are amazing teams to add, but it still doesn't feel anywhere near as good as when the Big 12 had Texas and Oklahoma in the league. Same thing could be said for the Pac-12. Like they're, they might add good pieces. They might be in a good spot. Oklahoma, uh, Oregon and Washington might ultimately stay there. We'll see what happens. I don't know. But it's never going to feel as good as when SC and UCLA were there. So whether you still consider them part of the Power Five, Autonomous Five, whatever, it's beside the point. Ultimately, if these two leagues are going to continue to exist, it'd be fun if we could create enemies within the leagues. So I would support anything that could pit those teams together because clearly, as you could tell by George Klyovkov's comments, uh, he has very ill will towards the Big 12 right now, and understandably so. All right, now to get to some news and notes, some things that came up throughout the course of the weekend. The Pac-12 commissioner, George Klyovkov, he's bullish on an expanded college football playoff, potentially before 2025. 
So I thought that was a little bit interesting. I don't, I don't know how that's going to work itself out. It'd be awesome. <laughs> would definitely love it. Would support it. Be great. But I can't believe what kind of 180 we've seen from some conference commissioners over the last couple of weeks in regards to an expanded playoff, especially knowing that they all shot it down or three of the 11 that had a vote on it shot it down just a few months ago. So George Klofkoff bullish on the possibility of an expanded college football playoff format and prior to 2025. We'll see. Uh, and then college sports, the unlimited transfer rule, meaning that you can just go anywhere whenever you want to go and there's no problem. There's no repercussions. You can just go. Mid-season, say you play for the Texas Longhorns, you want to transfer to TCU, perfect. Even if they play TCU next week, it's fine. <laughs> At least, obviously, it's a slightly exaggerated situation. But that rule is unlikely to pass this week. So that's where we're at. A couple of news and notes when it comes to the college football world. We'll, of course, keep you updated every step of the way because we're here every day. We'll keep you updated every step of the way in case there's additional movement or if there's some traction going on the aforementioned topics. Thanks for being with us. We really appreciate it. It's been so fun spending the last three weeks with you. First 16 shows are now in the books. So we look forward to continuing to provide you the content that you guys love when it comes to the college football world. Please like, rate, and subscribe. It really helps us out. It helps the show out. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at alwayscfb. You can hit us up in our email, alwayscollegefootball at gmail.com. That would be great to interact with you. Send us some mailbag questions because we'll continue to get into some of those here in the coming days and weeks. Remember, college football season never ends, especially when it's August. <laughs> we can't wait to be back with you tomorrow. For all of us here at Always College Football, for Mark Kubiak, I'm Greg McElroy. Hope you have a wonderful day. And remember, it's always college football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.